to this Connect All with me, Jenny Anderson, and my guest today is Anna Lewis Smitsman, who I'm going to ask to introduce herself in just a minute. For those of you who have uh, never joined perhaps a Connect All webinar before, um, we're really thrilled and very lucky to have Connect All host uh, a number of really important conversations about the future, about the future of work. Um, so do feel free to dive into the website and explore many of the different webinars that have been hosted on a wide variety of different topics. My series uh, is the Regenerative Business Series in which I'm exploring with different experts from different areas uh, in, in the world what a regenerative future uh, might look like. So how we could possibly design um, a, a regenerative economy uh, that's much less extractive and much less demanding on the planet and people um, than our current one. And this is the third, I think, in our regenerative leadership series. And the regenerative leadership is really all about um, trying to find ways that we can shift our sense of leadership to open up and encourage that new um, regenerative economy to emerge. So what I'd like to do now is ask my special guest, this is a very special webinar for me because normally we have several different guests, but our last webinar with four brilliant women, we had a lot of requests to dig deeper into the work of Anna Lois um, and that's what we're going to do today. So Anna Lois, um, welcome, thank you for joining us. She's joining us from Mauritius where I only worked out about half an hour ago, it's in fact 11 o'clock at night. So do please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work and how you got here. Thank you so much and I'm always delighted to have these conversations with you so I trust this is going to be an amazing time we're going to have again uh, together. So um, yes, my name is uh, Annelou Smitsman. As you may hear in the name, it sounds quite Dutch. It is because I was born in the Netherlands and lived there um, for the first half of my life and then um, lived in uh, South Africa, Australia and uh, recently Mauritius. Um, I have an organization that's called Earthi Center with an amazing uh, team of people from around the world where we have uh, this deep commitment that we're sharing um, together to, to really transition to what we call thrivability civilization, um, which is really much, very much in the essence of regenerative leadership is required for that. And where we've also been exploring what it means then to be uh, these future archetypes. What does it mean to be wholeness coders, future creatives and uh, evolutionary catalysts and pattern weavers and new paradigm storytellers to really support the emergence uh, of these new systems to be the change that we wish to see in the world um, and to also as an evolutionary learning community to truly practice um, these new emerging skills as well and to be in those deeper conversations together so that's also Really, you know, my passion and my commitment um, is deep transformational change and uh, transformational change for thriveability, uh, for um, regenerative consciousness as well. And, um, you know, my, what I love to do is to really explore how we can bring forth that deep wisdom of life and the deep wisdom of our planet. And now really apply that in uh, in our activities in the way that we are with each other the systems that we create including also the governance systems I have various backgrounds um education business uh, science uh and you know integrate all of that together really for that shared commitment so that's a little bit about me mm -hmm. fantastic so I'm really keen to understand, because when I first heard about these archetypes, I, uh, because um, I think perhaps in my life, I've always been fascinated by different types of psychometric profiling, whether it's something like DISC or the vitality test. I've always been really interested in the power they have to work with teams, to foster personal development, but this seemed to be very different to me. So um, I was wondering how 
how they actually, how you discovered them, um, what what led led you to to see them emerging themselves in your work? Because I know you've been this is something you've been studying for years. So when when how did they first pop up before we dig into what they are? Mm. Thank you for, for asking that and for you know letting myself actually go back into that journey, which is amazing. So yeah, for the last five years, I've been, um, and I'm completing that right now, conducting a PhD research uh, about, and it's called Into the Heart of Systems Change, which is to explore uh, on the one hand, what is that transition process for a thrivability civilization, but also how can we hospice what, the ultimate's dying and what do we need to understand about the systemic barriers that we're having um, whereby what we see is that a lot of people with amazing intentions and, and great goodwill and we seem to form all these international agreements also around the sustainable development goals and how to stop runaway climate change but then we're starting to see that when it comes to really the deeper actions and especially the collaborative actions uh, we're nowhere near where we need to be so by being in that in that research and then you know going in depth in better understanding what are these societal systems that we have created that have come out of this mechanistic dualistic thinking and then i started to see that there are particular archetype dynamics um and that these archetype dynamics are also quite individualistic and so what i noticed mm -hmm. is that you have like the personal hero journey and but uh, or people they attached to one type of archetype and saying, you know, this is what I am. Um, but I realized that where we need to, to go right now is really that collective wisdom and from the, making this shift also from collective intelligence to collective wisdom to come into the larger story of us. So I felt that the archetype dynamics of our mainstream conventional systems cannot possibly <laughs> bring forth the deeper mm -hmm. shift. Uh, yeah, in consciousness and behavior that we needed. And um, then I started to also look around and, and see, especially among the youth, in these moments of breakdown, in these moments of collapse, in these moments where people feel this very deep, no, that's an old story, no more. What rises up mm -hmm. in that, that we may not perhaps even be conscious of? So what I started to describe, what are the qualities, what are the behaviors, what is the, the kind of questions that I see that people are exploring in those transition times? What's the focus that's different from before? And then I, um, my friend Jean Houston had a, a lovely personal call and she said, look, Annelies, you have this capacity to somehow access this future reality as a as almost like a parallel dimension mm. but you need to really make it very concrete for people so what can you do for what's natural for me she said what can you do to really describe that and and during that personal call we had and said hey Jean I have a feeling that at a higher level of the collective being the archetypes themselves are converging and that became a fascinating conversation so I said you know it's not that archetypes are static uh, we also as much as they bring us forth, we also bring them forth. So there, to me, there are, there are deeper structural patterns within our collective becoming and also in the collective unbecoming because it, it, the creation process goes mm -hmm. in both directions, yeah? And it's through that yeah. uh, journey then that, yeah, start to be able to name that. that, that that's absolutely fascinating. So I, I'm just sort of kind of thinking about my own experience of it, you know, of this, this um, let's call I'll call it an ontological threshold of trying to move from one mindset to another, um, and you spoke about that as being a really critical, uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, critical um, point in us being able to actually activate the kind of behaviours that will transform um, systems. So if I'm if I'm thinking, for example, about let we will let's pick climate change because it's the big focus of attention right now. Then if we think back to uh, 2015 when the um, Cli Paris Climate Agreement was signed, um, but we haven't really seen a shift, the the, the the shift in the commitment 
to the targets that were agreed on there. And of course, it's enormously complex and there are lots of barriers. Um, but if I come down from that macro level to the micro level, my personal experience, particularly around collaboration, is that there are lots of people that want to collaborate or talk about wanting to collaborate to work on projects that, that projects of change of any kind. Um, but there is, seems to be this barrier where um, we understand, we cognitively understand what we want to do, but there's an emotional and relational barrier that seems to stop us from being able to push those collaborations through. And perhaps that is, as you say, decades of operating, more than decades, um, probably thousands of years of operating with a competition-based mindset. So, so, you know, what we're talking about is looking at the kind of archetypal patterns that we've lived, like the hero's journey, um, and thinking that, that they are not going to actually change, but completely new archetypes and behavior patterns will have to emerge. Exactly. Did I get that right? Absolutely, absolutely. So if we ourselves are talking about collaboration, aiming to collaborate, but are pursuing that to archetypes that don't, <laughs> It's almost like by yeah. default, it's not going to work. You know, we won't be going any further than saying, yeah, it's a good idea to collaborate. But you, so this is why I was exploring well, what are the archetypes or that level, structural level of our collective unconsciousness mm. as well as consciousness, which ones actually are collaboration. Not only do they collaborate, they are that wisdom of collaboration. Yeah. 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 So before we get, we start digging into each of the archetypes, what were the different strands that you had to study to, you know, to allow this knowledge to emerge? Mm, that's a nice one. Well, first of all, um, and that was a real challenge, especially in academia. I noticed that um, although I was encouraged to think outside the box and to be an integral thinker, when I noticed that many of the current frameworks that there were just could not help me to explore this question. And so I started also interviewing a lot of different people about the question, have you encountered in your work a systemic barrier whereby you feel that, you know, you've come in with such passion and commitment for that deep transformational change and just, it's like you, it's like you hit a wall and it's just not happening to that depth. And then I noticed a lot of people sensed it and they could feel it but it seemed there wasn't a language for it and so what I noticed then through mm -hmm. my case study research of working of transformational change in conventional systems in education and business I started to see that the same barriers I would encounter in educational systems I encounter in business and I think these are totally different systems apparently but however they operate within the same economic system because you talked about when you started about the economic mm -hmm. system and the regeneration needed there so I started to see that there, was, there were barriers that people were experiencing on an individual level, in their relationship, on the community, in business, in education, in governance, all across different cultures. Uh, and um, so I then wanted to you know, understand better what are these systemic barriers then and where do they come from? Mm. And I did not, I mean, there's amazing literature itself on barriers and transformational change, but not these particular systemic barriers. So I then kind of had to trace it all the way back and started to see, so the first of all, what's the main quality of these barriers is that they have a polarizing, dualistically dividing dynamic. So wherever they show up, this system, okay. the way that it operates, yes, what it does, it creates like this imbalance, even if left, right, masculine, feminine, yeah, yeah. Uh, rational, intuitive, all across, yeah. yes. And um, so that was the first one. And then I started, when I worked it all the way back and working a lot with indigenous wisdom, I started to see this is not coming out of the industrial age, which is often thought about that mechanistic systems, as we call them, coming mm. out of the industrial age, but it actually started with the agricultural revolution, let's say 6,000 years yeah. ago or even longer, when we changed our relationship with the land and we developed particular tools. 
and then started to see that, that different cultures came with different choices and different solutions for what they considered their next growth uh, choice. And, and that especially yeah. the cultures that wanted to grow much faster uh, and expand and grow also an influence that the, the kind of growth model that they adopted led to a separation of our relationship with the land and then gave yeah. rise to more and more disconnection, more and more duality. And that disconnection, mm. it's now become so, it's almost like the status quo. It, it's, it's incredible that yeah. you know, many of the people have this constant sense of a disconnection, but don't quite know how to address that. And it's, it's so deeply been internalized Something that long ago was not internal came out of an yeah. external relationship with the land, but it's become so. I've seen this shift where we've internalized the disconnection, and yet we have externalized our powers. <laughs> so we are now, right. in, yeah, so it's like now we attribute all our powers to technology, so we're kind of less empowered, and yet the, the, the division we have internalized. So it's through that journey that I started and also again see huh, what's going on here and from yeah. where can we then pull the resourcefulness that we need. Yeah, that, that's absolutely fascinating and it kind of brings me to mind. It's amazing how, uh, you know, how many different routes towards this understanding we can find because you know, I'm thinking about going searching for trying to identify that barrier that you've just so ably described and not understanding, you know, and, and thinking, okay, this is just me. I'm not bright enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not, you know, my change processes are not good enough. My communications are not good enough. All of those kind of narratives and starting to go looking and where there are two places that I first came across my first insights about what you're talking about. And one was through an archaeologist friend, um, you know, having a sort of beer as you do. Um, we started talking about, um, you know, really old, um, uh, the, the relationship between the sh shifts in religion and the agricultural revolution and, and uh, tribes who lived off the land moved for the first time moving into cities and building walls. Um, you know, and how, how uh, uh, he tracked back in um, archaeology that, that moment when that actual physical separation of people to land started to occur, when we literally started to build walls, which was absolutely fascinating. And the other kind of insight came from a partial Jewish history and studying, learning to speak Hebrew, which was very closely aligned to why I was looking at archaeology in the first place. So I think it's really interesting how far back we have to go to start to unpick this. Um, but time is ticking on, so let us, let's get into exactly what these archetypes are. And um, so shall, shall we start with, um, I find them absolutely fascinating because I'm still trying to work out with which I identify most strongly and which I hope is emerging through me. So let's start with the future creator. Tell, okay. us, tell us a little bit about each of these archetypes and how they're manifesting. Right. Well, and I like to start from the beginning because you, how okay. you can visualize them like a medicine wheel. So you can see it okay. um, if you have the center of a wheel that in the very center of that wheel is the wholeness coder because that is coming from okay. that wholeness itself as oh. what we see in the center new physics as that life is a unified reality. And that the old, you know, mechanistic okay. perspective of particles and uh, yeah, that all of that's falling away. So when we understand the, the unitary reality of life, there's that wholeness itself as a code. We each are a code of wholeness. A wholeness code that brings that forth. And so remember again, so if you want to kind of live into that, where they're coming from is, as I was exploring, if I was to be in a really conscious thrivability civilization right now, so imagine that there are no barriers and that we, you know, we really are deeply in touch with life and understand that we each are these living systems. How would that uh, civilization look like? How would it operate? How would it relate? How would it grow itself? And it's through that then that those five came. So the wholeness coder in the center, 
Um, and what we're seeing now, like for example, if we can bring it back to the youth, this fascination that they're having with code, understanding code, language of code, and that they you know, have this feeling of, if I want to change uh, the parameters of the system, if I want to change my experiences, if I want to change what's possible, I have to change the code, I've got to crack the code, I have to understand the code. And uh, so the wholeness coder is really starting in the center. And when I had these conversations with my dear friend, uh, Chief Foley, and he was saying, this is amazing because these archetypes, they know them in their indigenous communities as well, as emergent, as having almost been dormant for a long time and now they're coming up. So when in our conversations, we explored that the wholeness coders in indigenous communities used to be like the sacred law keepers. Um, the ones who okay. really understand, you see, the, the universal principles. So in the center, it's, it's knowing that the foundations for ourselves, for being able to develop our own lives and our society is these universal sacred principles. And then by that comes then the next one that emerges out of that is then the future creative. <laughs> That's the one that you love, yeah. And, okay. um, well, no, I, I love them all. But okay. before we go on to the creative, I, I, I want to just dive into the wholeness coder yes. a bit. So a wholeness coder is somebody then who has an intuitive sense about um, the, the underlying pillars of what something is. That's it. Um, or, the pattern, uh, or the patterns that... So if I think about it in nature, it's maybe like the the mycelial network. What 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 being able to see what completely holds everything together. What what a system actually is and what it looks like. Or am I barking yeah, up the wrong right. tree? No, that's right. So it's the conditions of that. So the wholeness coder somehow is sourcing its awareness from first of all from understanding the principle of wholeness so a wholeness coder isn't seeking to recreate this pattern of duality or division it understands that fundamentally life is whole we are each whole beings nested as whole lungs within wholeness within larger wholeness and that wholeness seeks to actualize itself yeah. um, so that even what may appear as an opposite even what may even appear dual is not dual. It is underlying that there's yeah. a deep dimensional reality. So, and then, so this person indeed has this deep sense and understanding of the very conditions out of which phenomena, phenomena emerge. Whereas the pattern weaver, which we'll come to later, will see the events, yeah. Yeah, the patterns that give rise and emerge from those codes, can see it on the event horizon. Okay. The wholeness coder can even stand more fundamental in that space of, huh, if I make this, I crack this code, it's like knowing the one door mm. that opens all the other doors, making the one decision that yeah. unlocks all the other decisions. That's a real whole, wholeness coder uh, attitude and perspective. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so that, you know, if I'm, I'm kind of trying to think in terms of, um, what that person might look like in our degraded system. Um, so, so I, I, you know, I, I, I'm guessing it's the person who is the fish out of water in an existing organization that sees yep. systemically and senses systemically when they walk through the door of an organization, what particular sickness that organization might have and what it's, where the cultural entropy or things are go that are going wrong in the organization are and what is the root source of that. Exactly. And this person as well will ask the questions, what are we measuring? What are our indicators? What are the data? Um, you know, and we'll seek to facilitate that transformational change at the level of the, the vision, the purpose of the organization, also its policies. So it goes directly into the structure of the organization and we'll know therefore how do we shift the code, even the code of conduct, right. can be the code of, code of ethics, the code of governance. Um, yeah. So what are the laws, the deeper agreements of the organization yeah. and to shift that in order to 
facilitate that change. Yes. Okay. I'm getting closer to working it out, but I want to, I want to spend the rest of the webinar on just that one, but we're going to have to move on. So, okay. So from the wholeness coder, where shall we go next? Then we go to the future creative, because when you understand okay. code, that means that you can create new possibilities. If you don't understand code, it's very difficult to create new possibilities. So a future creative now is able to increase the possibility space in sometimes what appears as impossible situations. So a future creative actually gets activated, gets sometimes even excited yeah. when everyone else goes, that's it. We can't do this. You know, we have to give up. We have to let it go. The future creative goes, oh, really? Well, you know, um, I only need 1% or... It hasn't been done before, so if it hasn't been done before, that means there's no evidence that it can't be done, so why not go and do it? So the future creative sources okay. that creative power from the field of possibility and, and sources that, um, you know, also from that has a deep sense of potentiality, can therefore also work with the process of emergence. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... So yeah, that's what I, that's where I'm thinking. So it's the person who. Um, so let, I, I, I'm just thinking as an example, like Extinction Rebellion, that has you know kind of popped out of nowhere, even though it's it might be using code that we recognise and that we know. Um, it, it it is seeing it's creating a future possibility of a shift in our political system and our way of doing things by introducing things like citizen assemblies which is you know a slightly a more than radically different idea uh, it's more than just a disruptive idea it is a fundamental um it, it it is a thing that would fundamentally change the way in which our parliamentary democracy works i say works but doesn't work um, so is that a good example? Yes, although I see them still part of a dualistic system. So they are still operating as the okay. And because they're still in the antipole of the okay. system that they're protesting against, they're in some ways not fully future creative. So okay. to me, they, are, they might be on their way, okay. but they're going to be a lot more future creative yeah. when they can work with convergence. So they're kind of a little bit disruptive. They're disruptive, yeah. but they're not transformative. That's it. That's it. And that may be the role that they need to play right now, you know, and that might be their, their right role for yeah. what's needed. But, but I see as well as that they're mobilizing a lot of, um, what is it, almost angst. And sometimes as well, they're mobilizing a lot of, mm, I don't like this and I don't want this. And, but to be truly okay. creative, to me, you, you source even deeper. So you now okay. also provide um, concrete examples and, and, and ways of bringing into being, into formation, these possibilities that haven't as yet been explored. And you don't okay. need for so that exploration the antipole. Okay. So where, can you give me an example of where you see that emerging right now, a group of people or a um uh, you know a, a, an ecosystem where that's popping up yeah well in our with our team when the, where we're working on the tipping point festival is a really good example where we are really looking now at how can we cohere and working what we call the sleeping giants of the masses in the global commons so how can we work to bring that and catalyze together and then we're working arts and music now as a way to positively connect people around a larger vision and at the same time put it into application through triability cities and so this is where we're saying okay. in terms of being future creative really increasing the possibility space um being able to create deeply collaborative platforms that people can not only know about each other but co-create together as well as giving people the support to develop these co-creative capacities and and creating new experiences and this is what's really important is i still see there's so much much talking about but unless we kind of create these new experiences it's not yeah. going to shift on that real embodied level you know it will kind of remain here no. and when we come yep. into a new you see this is where the future creative comes in and so it's like 
um, literally you guide people into the experience of that future possibility and their whole being gets it they go oh wow <laughs> and and then it's okay. like the future starts bringing you forth so that's that switch over moment rather than right. looking at the future as a place of aspiration you're now letting that future bring you forth okay wow that 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 just that's that you know i'm getting slight tingles because that sounds so it sounds so totally different such and it should be totally different um but i'm trying you know i suppose in a prosaic sort of way i'm trying to make it understandable in my own mind to to see how does a person who exists in this in this paradigm become a future creator what do they what experiences do they need to do to allow that emergent future to to rise through them yes and that's a good question so it starts with within yourself and we can do that right now to seeing how, what's actually my own possibility space so if we're looking at my possibility space, me as a possibility space for emergence, me as a possibility space for the future, where are the boundaries of that? Where is my membrane of that? How open or how close is it? How responsive is it? Yeah? What's my language in that? What's my narrative inside that? And so we, this is how we shift the inner paradigm as well. And that means then also, you know, one of the kind of the first attitudes that will come up with are really useful in that is that as a way of trusting into the unknowable <laughs> and what's not yet known. So it's, yeah. it's rather than letting them kind of the mind <laughs> take the lead. It's almost yeah. like, you see, that's what it is. <laughs> I know. Well, and and of course, my mind being, being a person that's, <laughs> very motivated by what's going on in here yeah. i'm always going back up here but i i managed in a small way today i was trying to name our new organization for ages which is a, a bioregional learning center and today um my partner who is a constellations expert just got fed up with me and said you know what here's what you do you write all the different names on pieces of paper you turn them over on the floor go out for a walk in nature come back <laughs> then you stand on each one and let your body tell you which is the right solution because your body will know. And there's my cognitive self it is, is rebelling monstrously at the eye, you know, my brand strategic head that has spent 30 years crafting brands is rebelling ferociously at the idea that by standing on a piece of paper, I'm going to get the right solution. But, but, I have to reveal that it worked. It worked, and 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 yeah, it's just quite cool. an amazing experience. No, I know. So so like weeks and weeks of bending my head around this this name, and boom, out it came. So okay, so we're only done two archetypes, and I'm keeping an eye on the clock. So let's continue. Yes. So when we're truly future creative, it is going to bring up also the edges. It's going to bring out our, our comfort yeah. zone. So this is why the evolutionary catalyst activates naturally as soon as we become future creative. Okay. So the evolutionary catalyst, these are traditionally more the people also that like they're the healers, they are the teachers, they're the facilitators, they're comfortable in learning, you know? Um, and, and this is where he, learning and healing combines. And this is quite important. Because if we, if we don't know how to heal, we're going to carry over all of those unresolved emotions into the, yeah. you know, the next creations and the next uh, ventures. So we can't create something new if the new isn't taking place inside. If, if we ourselves are holding on to, to an old story and an old ex experience, we are projecting that. So then life may come in with new possibilities. And there we go. We are filtering that now through our lenses. So the evolutionary yeah. catalyst then is able in those moments when we feel challenged, in the moments when we feel like giving up, or in the moments when we go, this is too hard. This is when the evolutionary catalyst gets activated and says, but okay, how can I reach out? And how can I bring my love and compassion into this? Or some joy and some humor and lighten up. But it, they're also like the alchemists. They start playing with whatever ingredients are in the field 
into new combinations now to catalyze an evolutionary learning process and as foundational for consciousness shifts. So, so they are, you know, I, I imagine these kind of people as having great um, qualities to, it's probably an overused phrase, but to hold space for what is, uh, uh, to, to, to almost be like a cauldron in which transformation can happen, yes. where you can still feel a degree of security and safety. You know, they're almost people who are able to anchor you a little bit, perhaps, as you go through this, um, you know, it's a painful experience of the unknown unknown is very, it's, an, it's not an easy experience. It's an unpleasant experience in many ways. It can be very exciting, but it's also hard. That's it. That's it. And they can really hold space for also exploring those dark areas, you know, and where mm -hmm. the pain may be and where indeed the fear is or where there's also death. Because when you, you know, when we're working with these future archetypes, of course, there's also dying of the old worlds within ourselves. And that is not, mm -hmm. as you said, it's not always easy. And when this is when that evolutionary catalyst activates and awakens from within ourselves, mm -hmm um to now use all of them emotion thought fear whatever mm -hmm. comes up puts it in the cauldron as you said cooks it up <laughs> alchemizes yeah. it and produces and, yeah. and and brings forth you know through that new insights new clarity uh deeper yeah presence. and, and the, the, the the kind of images that are coming up for me is that, that you know, that kind of rebirth of the Phoenix in, and I don't know if these are right, but they're just coming into my head as I think yeah. about it. And that, that, you know, that going through the alchemical fire of change, um, you know, that, 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 that you actually see, I'm trying to think of there's a children's book about, you know, the shedding of the skin. That's a very symbolic, um, kind of experience in terms of transformation um you know the the i'm thinking of and i'm also thinking of them being people that really definitely understand collective trauma that's it and that's how that. yeah exactly and and they are the people that i find in many of our convention organizations and especially business are not always honored because yeah. they're, they're, they, have, they can have such a gentle presence of just being there always at the right time. <laughs> you know, sometimes mm -hmm. it can be, the, it can be the, the person who's actually cleaning the office and you may not notice that they are your evolutionary catalyst. Mm -hmm. You know, and every day they're just yeah. always there at the right time and they, they see a lot of what's going on and may not even speak about it. Um, and they're giving mm -hmm. you a smile and yeah. So, so they, yeah, these nerd, they're more in the nurturing role as well. Um, yeah. yeah, the whole beautiful medicine. There, there's a, also a sort of deep sense of the, uh, of um, uh, almost like a mothering kind yeah. of, you know, without stepping back into the duality of masculine feminine. Yeah. But there feels something, it feels yeah. like that a bit to me. Yeah. That's it. But maybe that's me like pulling it back into the present again. <laughs> well, but it, it's a aspect to that of, of nurturing now the growth because as we are also working, I mean, you know, the step before there was the future creative. So you're bringing new growth into the world, but you have to nurture that. So this is also where yeah. this mothering or fathering aspect can come in to really be a parent for now this little seedling yeah. within ourselves so yeah. that it can grow into maturity in a really healthy, balanced way. Mm, mm, I'm, uh, I'm like, uh, I love that, the, the feeling of that archetype. Yes. Um, it, yeah, it feels quite alien to me in the present, but that might be saying something more about me than the actual <laughs> archetype. <laughs> okay, so what comes next? The pattern weaver. <laughs> You're like Ooh. this yes yeah, i like that one <laughs> exactly <laughs> so it's a pattern weaver so we know the weavers um, so we know the weaver kind of archetype that's not a new archetype but this is the one that really 
is conscious of the patterns that it weaves. So it works with the pattern that connects. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing now is that our world has been woven a lot by the pattern that divides, not the pattern that connects. Mm -hmm. So this future archetype is, is very, very conscious of, you know, what Gregory Bateson used to call the, the pattern that connects, yeah? And, and starts yeah. to now seed that into the world and also weaves these patterns of consciousness, patterns of compassion, patterns of collaboration, yeah? Uh, patterns yeah. of regenerative design principles as well really able to to weave that so that we now start to get these fabrics these deeper fabrics of these new kind of civilizational foundations that can start to come into being um, that are so important where all the nodes of the nervous system they, they connect and what sort of, you know, where do you see that showing up? Can you give us an example of, um, you know, uh, a, a, a kind of field of uh, emergent change where you see that showing up really well? Is it, you know, are you seeing that, um, you know, thinking of the, you know, the self-organizing um, types of companies that are emerging, would they fit that kind of pattern weaving? Yeah, so you, what you're seeing is that anybody who's working at the meta network level as well, you're starting to see they're not just not interested anyone in creating their own little network, but they're looking at networks of networks. People were in the yeah. transcontextual conversations. People were looking, what are the independencies between systems? So kind of in the, the old school, there was the kind of the, the network where I wouldn't call that the network is necessarily a pattern weaver. It might, might have been having the one of maybe perhaps some of those initial beginnings of what become, could become a pattern weaver. But a pattern weaver goes much mm -hmm. further. Where are we seeing, for example, yeah. people working with innovation? They may be now what they do is they work with diversity in a really collaborative manner and they create new hybrid models. Um, so these are people's right. business, for example, they'll create these new hybrid models of like a non-profit company that may have certain profit activities, but it also has a non-profit model. It doesn't have a separate CSR department. Um, it's, you know, either it's corporate sustainability or it's sustainability commitment or value creation commitment is all the way through at the strategic level. It's not divided as just having one department that needs to take care of that as separately. So these are also anybody who's working with integral design uh our pattern yep. weaving as well yeah and this is this is where you see okay. them showing up. so we we so we're not seeing that really showing up yet in what we'd call our um for want of a better word normal business world you know i'm 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 not seeing that for example even in things like big corporations yet yeah, we need to. So those are. Sorry, lost you there. Yes, I agree with you that we need to have this a whole lot more. So this is one skill definitely that we haven't developed enough because we don't go far enough. We don't think transcontextually enough. You know, so what you, for example, see the diversity principle in many organizations is now being implemented. In Mauritius, we have a code of corporate governance where diversity principles part of the mm -hmm. code means that you also need to apply that in your board. So the way you select your boards needs to show that there is a diversity in your selection process. But then what happens, they put all these people in the room that they say, well, we have a diverse board, but they don't have a system in place where it now makes use of that diversity in a way that it's converges. Right, right. So then it still stays in silo. And then what you get is people say, well, I represent yeah. this issue. And the other one goes, I represent that issue. But we say, no, but we want to explore and now bring all these perspectives together. Not that you stay in that perspective, but it's so that coming back to this medicine wheel, I can actually now really learn uh, having a 360 degree view of the situation. And now how can we let that integrate and converge so that something new can emerge out of that? So, so I'm, you know, trying to translate that into you know, the kind of problems I see in the businesses that I work with. So if we stick with the diversity issue, uh, um, so let's take a company that has got a real commitment to diversity, has got really good policies in place, 
has managed to hire and put in place a diverse um, employee base, has got diversity throughout its supply chain. So, but, but as you say, they've kind of ticked the boxes, but there is then no system for them, no um, model of how to actually make that diversity work for them. So they're almost responding to uh, a law or a change in culture, um, a change in values. They're doing what meets that change in values, but they don't have a way to make it a coherent, uh, make it into something that does something for their business. So a, a, a person who's a pattern weaver steps in and what, you know, if, if I were talking to a board of a company with that kind of problem tomorrow, they, they, they're not going to go and say, oh, I need a pattern weaver because they're not going to understand that concept. So what kind of person are they looking for? How can they, you know, how can they make that step forward to make that diversity more coherent? Yeah, so the first uh, if pattern weaver will come into the room of that conversation, the first thing the pattern weaver would say, you have diversity as a strategy, but you're applying it through an old pattern. So you're not weaving okay. a new bath pattern, you're not weaving a new behavioral pattern, you're not weaving, you know, a new pattern of also of collaboration even or integration. So it would first help them to become aware what is the dominant pattern here in this in this organization and therefore okay. you, you can put diversity in there but diversity you can't make it work through that old pattern and then start to see mm -hmm. and then that person will then start to help to create a new pattern a new behavioral pattern um, which can be as as drastic as changing offices doing role play exercises really doing something unconventional like even with yourself for example if you brush your teeth always with your right hand <laughs> if you want to develop a new pattern even a new neurological okay. pattern start doing that with your left hand yeah. cross over so it's truly understanding at a deeper level is that we cannot get into the development uh, and it comes back yeah. to the evolutionary catalyst you don't catalyze development and evolution unless new neurological connection comes formed so that means new patterns, okay. new ways that these connections takes place. And that's also a design process. It's, it's about understanding yeah. that yeah, we have to create also new habits, new ways on which we operate. So, yeah, it's a very fundamental change inside organizational design. It's, it's almost a you know, I'm trying, as usual with my brain function, trying to map it to what we've got to work with today. And yeah. so it's falling into that organizational design discipline for me. Exactly. It's Maybe. like, I'll give you an example. When I was um, working with transformation in, in, in the school system, I'd create dialogues where I'd invite the rector, the students, the funders, the parents and the teachers all in one dialogue together envisioning how education would look like in the future they, it was the first time they actually sat together on the table let alone close their eyes to go into the future to envision the purpose of education yes so by doing that they came into a new experience together so that was a pattern weaver strategy to now create and right. weave into being a new experience and through that uh, it started to create more trust they started to learn from each other and uh, started to emerge a sense of us and sense of, of we. Yeah. Yep. So, so that is very then, very much then um, the type of organization that I would describe as a backbone organization that brings multiple different stakeholders together with different agendas to work uh, on common issues that they haven't seen are common issues. Um, Okay, getting getting that one. We've got one to go, and then we should take some questions. Um, anybody who would like to put a question to Annalus, do put, pop your question in the chat, or do say whether you'd like to come on and speak in person. Um, and so we've got 
One to Go, which is the new paradigm storyteller. Exactly. So the new paradigm storyteller is the one that tells the story of all these new experiences. And that's incredibly important. You know, because if you have all this innovation taking place within the organization, and yet the story that goes out is still the old story, then you're not able to inspire. So, uh, you know, the, the new paradigm storytellers, so they're not just storytellers, they, uh, they tell the story of the new pattern. They tell the story of our wholeness. Right. They tell the story of being future creative. They tell the story of new possibilities. So they tell the story of the entire process of all the archetypes, how they work together really as one system. And so in their storytelling as well, they are able to connect in whole new ways, um, you know, with the people around us, uh, including ourselves. So it starts, of course, also from within to really understand what, what is my story really at a, at a much more fundamental level. And, um, and how do so stories in, in many ways, sorry. Yes. So in many ways, then, are they the stewards, the guardians of confidence and courage? Are they, you know, in what they're doing, are they the people that are going to hold, um, you know, the, the thing that, that often doesn't hold through change is confidence and courage, um, you know, whatever kind of change. So that storytelling, which uh, supports that continual fundamental um, idea of, you know, this is emergent, but we know why we're going, where we're going, um, and making sure that, that it's understood at every step of the way um, in the process of transformation is what is almost like a glue that holds people's courage um, you know when they hit barriers of not understanding of never having experienced something new before is that also part of their role yes yes for sure and and you see them by being in that role they actually bring in all the archetypes because as they hold that mm. story and the moment they do that, they mean that they stay in the pattern that connects. So they don't collapse into back into the old divisions. Mm -hmm. That means they are keenly aware of the evolutionary growth process. So they understand the uncertainties, they understand the resistance. They can work with that. These storytellers by holding that story, really what's emerging, they are therefore also future creative. So they keep that possibility space open for what wants to emerge. And they are also wholeness coders because they understand by shifting the story, you shift the code. The story is also a code. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So indeed. And that it's like it all integrates together, comes together through that. So these are also, these are qualities that can apply to, you know, they may be more strongly emerging as archetypes in individual people but they also can sit and reside with all five in any single person. Yes, yes, They're, we have them all. I, I mean, that's how I, I approach it, is that if you truly want to bring forth that new paradigm, we'll have to develop all five. You may have ones that you say, that's really my archetype, I have a natural affinity with that. But for all of us yeah. to actualize our full human potential, you you really work with all five yeah and there's a reason why it's five from a from a deeper alchemical perspective we have five elements too <laughs> so it's saying yes. you know, yeah so the number five okay so when you foundational okay that's that's interesting to me because we get encouraged to think there are only four yeah so what are those five elements ah the fifth element is space ether in which all of them converge that brings you back ah. into the pre-creation space so it's like the densest this earth and then we have water yeah. then we have fire then we have air yeah. and then it's space yeah. ether yeah uh out of okay. which comes then and then we we enter into the non-material dimensions okay oh that might be getting beyond my possibilities <laughs> But you asked. <laughs> I did. I did ask. Yeah, I, I will ask the questions. Who are the storytellers that come to mind in our times that are telling this story? Other than yourself, of course. 
Well, many of the, if the amazing evolutionary leaders, you know, telling telling this story. But I also like to bring something um, that may not be obvious. I mean, look at the whole Harry Potter story. <laughs> it's also yeah. rekindling. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't think of that necessarily, but this story, these storytellers, are bringing magic back into our life. You know, um, mm. and so these are also very, very powerful, where they're taking kind of old story concepts, old story archetypes in a whole new way. And, you know, we can see how many children also have been reading books again because they love Harry Potter, yeah? Mm. And, uh, but also we're seeing, um, you know, uh, uh, and there, there are a lot of political leaders, unfortunately, and not yet in new storytellers. But we have some brave ones around who are, you know, I think Marion Williamson was quite brave in her campaign by wanting to, to introduce, for example, more yeah. conscious element of politics, yes. Um, so yeah. that, that she also comes to, to mind for me. And um, yeah, then... Um, and Jacinda Hearn in New Zealand also, maybe? Yes, yes exactly, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, there's there's many many of them. But I, I um, also love you know sometimes we, we don't think about them so necessarily. I, I met this lovely man at a conference uh, recently, Gary was his name, where he's been allowing the story of the river to get legal rights. So they've been working on a case okay. that the river now has uh, officially personhood. And, and, and that means also yep. now in the boardroom or in corporate structures that can become a shareholder. So he's been telling the story, bringing the, bringing the story of the river. So this is an example, for example, here, this man has been with his community, bringing that story of the river into systems where people had never heard of that. So in doing so, he shifted the code. Yeah. He created new possibilities, yeah. that new future creative. It starts as a whole new evolutionary catalyst process as well. And he's been connecting very different systems together, being a pattern weaver. So here's an example, you know, yeah. how all of that can come together. And, and that puts me in mind of Isabel Carlyle, who was on our uh, previous webinar together, who is also running a bioregional learning center in Devon, um, who has also been working with the community there to develop a, a river charter, which is a first step in our legal system, uh, that to, to because we don't have any legal um, possibility for giving an, um, a, a natural element power or rights. But to, we can, if we give it a charter, which is a very ancient piece of legislation in Britain, that is the community saying we value this. Uh, natural element beyond um, it, it, its possibility in our current mind. So she is doing similar work like that. And I, I guess people who are involved in um, uh, environmental regeneration uh, that are bringing, you know, very different concepts into agricultural management, um, into regenerative agriculture, all of those people doing that kind of work probably would fall into one or two of these different archetypes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, storytelling should be telling the story together instead of the leaders who tell a compelling story of the future. That's an interesting viewpoint. What, you know, what would you comment on that? I, I think agree. that's from Mark. And this is to me when for the evolutionary catalyst, what they do is to create the experience or they facilitate the conditions for that sharing that story and creating that story together. Because I agree in the old pattern, and that is again where we then shift the pattern. In the old pattern, it's always, you know, there's people who are listening or being told, and then there are those who see themselves as the leaders ahead, and they're telling everyone else now uh, what is yeah. now the next evolution, and that that is not gonna shift the paradigm. So it's very much about yeah. coming into new experiences together by which we discover this larger story of us. And that's yeah. understanding that there's, there's nobody can do that for anyone else. It, it's in the togetherness. Yeah, which, which I guess it would indicate that, you know, being able to work with collective intelligence is also super important. Yes, and that shifts to wisdom. 
because yeah. we're coming out yeah. of the knowledge economy. You know, I, I've been saying for yeah. a while we need to shift to the wisdom economy. <laughs> yes. I, oh, I really like that and that and, and I've just seen that actually we're at the top of the hour and the hour has as usual whizzed past. Thank you to everybody that has joined us and listened in and Lourish, thank you very much again um, yeah. and thanks to all our listeners.